In just about a month, a lot of us are going to have our TV sets glued to Rio de Janeiro. You know, this is probably the only time you've watched anything um, broadcast live from Rio in your life. But uh, you're going to tune in and watch stuff happening in Brazil. And you're going to be excited to see the Summer Olympics, right? Uh, you're, going to, uh, you're going to see world-class athletes. You're going to see uh, people compete in sports that don't get a lot of press a lot of times. Uh, any other time than about every four years when the Olympics comes around. You're going to see if Usain Bolt is still the fastest man alive at age 29. Uh, you're going to see if some younger star will dethrone that guy. Uh, we're going to see if Michael Phelps can do the impossible in his fifth Olympic appearance, if he really is Superman or not. Um, I will probably watch a little fencing, uh, a little boxing. I like to see those guys about 145 pounds because they are so fast and they hit so hard and I like it. Uh, I do. It's my flesh. I know it, but I love it. Uh, My house, we'll probably watch the gymnastics finals as well. And I think some of what makes watching the Olympics so amazing as we watch and what we're always impressed by is how much work and dedication really goes into this. Uh, I, I actually did some digging around and I found out from what I that, that the average Olympic athlete's day begins sometime around 6 o'clock a.m. with breakfast. By 7 they're off to the gym for their morning workout. Uh, after which they'll eat a recovery snack and rest and stretch for a while. And after that, they'll have lunch, followed by three additional hours of working out, uh, including at least an hour and a half of weightlifting and another hour and a half of practicing their sport, punctuated by a recovery snack in the middle. And then after final cool-down is done, uh, they'll have uh, dinner, and then about uh, after dinner, they'll have a couple hours to do something else, you know, pay bills or whatever it is that they do uh, with life. And then they'll be in bed a lot of times by 8.30 uh, so that they have enough energy to get up and do the same thing again. And that they will do this on average for a minimum of four years, six days a week for four years, or in some sports, up to eight years before they are in Olympic class shape to be able to actually succeed at the Olympic trials that determine whether or not you get to go or not to the actual Olympics. And of course, if you miss your shot, you don't get another one for another four years. And so if you miss, you have to decide, do I have it within me to go another four years, six days a week of, of basically a full-time job working out? Or do I, my, is this where I hang up my Olympic dreams? And along the way, you'll need a combination of, of phenomenal genetics and incredible, relentless discipline and, com- and a ferocious competitive spirit and a body that, all, by the way, is not prone to injury because if you get injured, all of this, all bets are off. Now, knowing all that, let me ask you a few questions. 
If you can remember, who won the women's all-around gymnastics title in 2012? Anybody remember? I don't either. All right, who won the, the gold in the men's 10-meter platform diving? None of you? Really? All right. Uh, how about the gold in the women's 100-meter hurdles? No, no takers on that one either. Okay. Uh, do you remember what city they were held in in 2012? Okay, it was London, just in case you're curious. All right, now, I'll bet that not one person in ten of us could answer all four of those questions without the aid of Google, right? We would have to look that up. And what that tells me is that earthly glory, such as it is, is temporary. It's temporary. And the Olympics, winning an Olympic gold medal is one of the most phenomenal human achievements that a person can ever attain in this life. I mean, you get to walk around forever for the rest of your life with one of the ultimate one-up trump cards that there is, right? Oh, so you work at CBS. Well, that's great. I won an Olympic gold medal, <laughs> right? I mean, you get to do that the rest of your life. Oh, want to see? I actually have three. I mean, wow. You know what I mean? This is an amazing thing. This is one of the pinnacle human achievements. And yet, I'll bet within four months, never mind four years, most of us couldn't name who the, who the gold medalist was in sports that we watched. Human glory is temporary. And it doesn't take four months before the, sh- the, the medals are hung on a shelf somewhere. And it's really kind of sad when you think about it. Because all of that time, all of that suffering, all of that training, all of that effort gives you one shining moment of glory. And then all of it's over. You wake up the next morning and it's done. And it happens before the first of the leaves have started to drop off the trees. Everyone will have forgotten who you are and what you have achieved. And I bring all this up because today in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at the examples of Moses and the ancient people of Israel. And we're going to learn that for them, the choice was to choose obedience to God over temporary comfort and glory. And we're going to learn from them to suffer temporarily for rewards that are eternal and lasting rather than temporary and fleeting. And so if you haven't found your way there yet, I want you to invite you just to turn to Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 23. And we're going to look at Moses, first of all, in verses 23 to 26. Uh, the Scripture says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather 
to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, if you look at these verses closely with me, what you'll see is that they are a description of, of the first part of Moses' life. And if you remember the book of Exodus, you remember that after Joseph went down to Egypt, he was sold there as a slave by his brothers, which, by the way, if you think you have a dysfunctional family, the Bible trumps that, right? None of you have ever been sold into slavery by your brothers. But nonetheless, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he, while he's there, he spends a lot of time in prison. And then eventually he gets out of prison and he becomes prime minister of Egypt. And, and it is through his wise leadership that the nation of, of Egypt and a lot of the surrounding countries are saved from famine. And then also how his own family uh, is saved from the effects of the famine in Israel. And so the entire nation of Israel, such as it is, about 70 people, moved down to Egypt and there they're given the best of the land to raise their sheep and their flocks and herds, and, and they spend a lot of time there. And they are given really the best of the land and the run of it for a while until they, are, they begin to expand and to grow as a people. And then there comes a new king who did not know Joseph or what he had done for Egypt. And that new king sees all of these sheep herding bearded foreigners and says, we got to be wise about what we do with these people because they're going to be a threat to us. They are not native Egyptians. And besides that, have you seen how they live? Uh, They raise sheep and that is gross. And they smell bad and they have facial hair and they are different from us and we don't like them. So we're going to turn them into slaves. And so uh, that's, in fact, what they do. And they enslave the nation of Israel. And the idea is, well, if we make them our slaves, that will diminish the threat, not only because we'll be oppressing them, but because it will diminish the amount of the number of babies that they are having. And they won't grow as numerous as they are. But nevertheless, the, the worse the oppression got, the more babies they had. And And the Pharaoh begins to look for a solution. And so he says, I tell you what we'll do. We will make a law that says that any male Hebrew baby that is born is to be cast into the Nile. Now, the Egyptians worship the Nile as a god. And so, you know, offering these Hebrew babies into the Nile is like offering sacrifices to their god. But, of course, the babies are going to die in the Nile, either by drowning or by being eaten by some crocodile or something that's in there. And Moses' parents, though, take a different approach. They say, well, the king has made his ruling. However, we have a beautiful baby boy, and we are not going to obey we're not going to do what the king says to do. And so they decide they're going to hide the kid for about three months, and they do, until the baby gets so big that they can't hide him easily anymore. 
And so what, what they do is they make a little waterproof bassinet, basically. And they don't just, you know, I know in the movies they, they depict this a little differently. But I think, what, I think what happens is that Moses' mama is a smart lady. And she knows where the Pharaoh's daughter goes to bathe every day. And so she takes her little boat and she sticks it in the, in the reeds right next to where uh, Pharaoh's daughter is going to be getting in to take her daily bath. And she leaves her daughter Miriam there to watch what happens. And she's hoping that the maternal instinct on Pharaoh's daughter is going to kick in. And in fact, that's what happens. That Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe. She sees this little bassinet floating there in the reeds. She sees this little baby boy, and what does she do? She does what every woman does when she sees a little baby. Oh, right? We all do that, right? I mean, not just women. We do that too, all right? Although I've been to the hospital sometimes and seen somebody's newborn and gone, well, that's a baby. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, he looks... He looks uh, just like you guys, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you got to come up with a different uh, vernacular if he looks like an alien staring back at you, right? But uh, anyway, um, but then he has this little beautiful baby boy, and Pharaoh's daughter sees him and loves him and takes him into her house and raises him as her child. And in a miracle of God's grace... She sees Miriam standing by there, and she goes, and Miriam speaks up and and says, you know, I happen to know a woman who would love to nurse that child and help you raise him. And she goes and gets her own mother, Moses' mother, to go and nurse the baby. And Pharaoh's daughter, this is the beautiful part, pays her to take care of her own kid. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, God has an amazing way of working, his, working things out uh, when he wants to. And, and as that kid grows up, what's even more amazing is that here is a young man who literally has the world at his feet. He is regarded as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, that he is adopted into the royal family. This is the greatest empire in, in the ancient world. He is living in a palace. He has access to all of the wealth and pleasures that go along with being a member of royalty in an ancient kingdom. He has all of that at his disposal. And who does he choose to identify with about the time he is 40 years old? Not the Egyptian woman who raised him and who gave him his name. Not the Egyptian people whose ruling house he lives in, but with the slaves. And he decides that he's going to, you know, he's going to kind of, you know, try a little operation, liberation here. And so he kills an Egyptian that is beating one of his countrymen. Has to get out of town. But later God brings him back. And he says, it won't be through your power and might, Moses, that the people will be set free, but through mine. And Moses 
is able to do all of these amazing things by God's power because he trusts in the God who made promises to his nation, to Israel. He could have been a prince, a ruler, and instead he decides to chunk it all to be identified with the slave people who are ruled by the Egyptians. And verse 25 and 26 tell us why that is. It says, He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It was far better in Moses' mind to be identified with the slaves and be part of God's people than to enjoy all of the sinful pleasures of Egypt. He could have had all of the wealth and women and wine and song that a man could ever want. But they were all temporary pleasures. And instead, he chose to step down from his royal position and identify with slaves. And again, what would motivate a man to do that? And verse 26 tells us, says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward and I love that little phrase here in verse 26 about the reproach of Christ being greater wealth. And what the author is saying there is that the reproach of Christ or the suffering of God's people, if you will, is a form of wealth that even the greatest and most fabulously wealthy empires in the history of the world can't hold a candle to. Because the reward that you get from suffering as one of his people so far outweighs that, that these two things are not even in the same category. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these books, you know, when, they, when Howard Carter and those guys dug up King Tut's tomb. They finally found an undisturbed tomb from uh, ancient Egypt, and they, what they found there is just wealth beyond imagination, Right? But this guy is a relatively minor king who didn't really have any stuff by comparison to some of the kings of ancient Egypt that predated him. The guy who built the Great Pyramid was probably the wealthiest person in the history of the world. He had unimaginable wealth. And Moses could have had that. And enjoyed everything that all of that wealth and all of those possessions buys. But instead, he said, suffering as part of the people of God gains me a reward that stands that far in the shade. And so I will go with that. I will pick suffering with the people of God because I am looking to the reward that comes from God for being part of his people rather than being part of the people I was adopted into by accident. 
I will choose God's people, and I will suffer with them even more than, than great treasure I will suffer with them. And, and hear, hear me on this. If you live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ, sooner or later, there will be a cost. There will be a cost. There will be people who make fun of you at school or at your work or in your neighborhood. There will be people who perhaps persecute you, as is happening all over the Middle East right now. There will be people who shake their head at you at what they see as the foolishness of following Christ. And they will say things to you like this. You know, you are so smart. You could have been and done anything. Why are you still messing around with the church and with Jesus and all of that stuff? Why would you do that? I mean, you could have had everything. And there will be people who say and do those kinds of things. But if you see clearly as Moses did, you'll see that the reward that is coming is far greater than any sacrifice, any bit of suffering, uh, any, uh, any temporary glory that could have been yours. And that's all it ever is. It's temporary glory. And you will instead trade all of that stuff, all the temporary glory that could have been yours, all of the wealth, all of the suffering that you endure as a result of following Christ, etc. You will trade it all in for an eternal glory that far outweighs all of it. And you will not think to yourself, you know, I made a bad trade here. I really should have gone with... I really should have gone with earthly glory and pleasure because, I mean, gosh, this is kind of a disappointment now that I'm here in heaven. That's not going to happen. You're going to get into the presence of God and you're going to go, you know what? Not only was it worth it, it was worth it at twice the price, at ten times the price. It was worth it regardless of what I had to give in order to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, that I might attain to eternal glory and eternal dwellings in the presence of God. And, and that's why Moses was able to walk away from all that, because he had his eyes on what was more important and what was lasting and what was going to be there forever. And one day... If you choose wisely, as Moses did, eternal and lasting reward over temporary pleasure and, and sin, you'll experience his salvation just like they did. Now look at verses 27 to 32 with me now here quickly. By faith, Moses, uh, I'm sorry, um, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. 
By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Verses 27 and 28 are about Moses and the Exodus. And the Exodus and the Passover happen on the same night. Uh, Freedom comes as the people put their faith in the blood of the Lamb to provide their deliverance. And it was also through the Passover that judgment fell on Pharaoh and on Egypt, but deliverance came for Israel and her leader Moses. The destroyer did not come for any in Israel who kept the Passover. Uh, In fact, the destroyer didn't come also for some Egyptians who saw what the Israelites were doing and said, I'm going to follow Israel and keep the Passover right along with them. In fact, there were some of them who went up with the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the Exodus. But for those who rejected Israel's God and whose houses were not marked with the blood of the Lamb, the destroyer did come. And he killed the firstborn sons of every household from Pharaoh in his palace to the lowest poor Egyptian. And through that plague, God set his people free from 430 years in Egypt. And Moses followed God's command and he led all of the people out of Egypt knowing that Pharaoh would probably come after them. Because after all, Moses had seen Pharaoh agree to let the people go and then refuse to let them go once the plague was lifted. And he knew that if Pharaoh caught up to Israel, that Pharaoh would most likely try to kill him because he was the leader. But he didn't fear the king's anger but he followed the Lord. And of course, the Lord did intervene in a miraculous way. Try to imagine this. They have the sea in front of them. They're hemmed in on both sides by mountains. And they've got Pharaoh's army, the leading army of the leading empire in the, in the ancient world at that time, closing in behind them. And the people begin to get concerned as they might. And God tells them, you don't need to fight. You need only be still and watch my deliverance. And what does God do? He himself forms the rear guard against Israel or for Israel against Egypt. He sets a column of fire behind them to guard the back. And then he opens up the ocean. And the people walk through. And then as they are, as they're getting all the way across, he lifts the column of fire. And the Egyptians see all of the people of Israel escaping through the water. And so they go, well, if they can do it, so can we. Turns out, no, they can't. Because God closes up the water over the army and drowns them all. And Israel is kept safe from Egypt for a couple of hundred years afterward because Egypt's power is broken off at the Red Sea. And verse 30 and 31 skip forward about 40 years during the days of Joshua who led the people on dry land through the Jordan just as Moses had taken their parents through the Red Sea. 
And when they got to the, the other side, their first major task was the taking of the city of Jericho, which was a major Canaanite city. Joshua sent in spies to report what was going on in the city and how they might take it. And they come to a house in the wall, the house of Rahab. And she is known throughout Scripture as Rahab the prostitute. But it's interesting where she, what she does with them. She hides them on the roof in stacks of flax that she has drying up there. I think what's happened, now the Scripture doesn't say this, but I think what has happened is that Rahab has gotten wind of all of the things that God has done for His people Israel, and she has believed in their God. And as a result, she has gotten herself a job. She's not a prostitute anymore when those guys show up. But she is now someone who is making linen, which is what you use flax for when it's dried, to make linen cloth. And historians tell us that they've actually found the city of Jericho, believe it or not. It's still there. And what's interesting when they did the excavations, and this is after the weirdest battle plan in the history of the world. Uh, God said, march around the city for seven days, and on the last day blow trumpets and shout, and the walls will fall down, and you'll be able to go straight up into the city. And in fact, what they found is that all of the walls of the ancient walls had in fact collapsed except for one portion that had a singular house in it. Now isn't that weird? It's one of those things that the little hairs on the back of your neck go up. Uh, but in addition to that, the, the wall was built in two sections. It had a lower wall and then, a, and then an, a, t- a top part. And that when they fell, they fell to the outside. And so all these falling pieces of wall would have formed essentially like a ladder going up into the city. And by the way, when you take a city from the outside, you push the walls in. But the walls didn't fall in, they fell out. How did that happen? Well, guess whose hand pushed the walls down, (laughs) right? Uh, God pushed the walls of Jericho over from the inside. And the point that that all of these verses are making is that by faith, Moses and Israel and even a Gentile prostitute escaped God's judgment. Instead of God's judgment, in fact, they all got richly rewarded. If you read Rahab's story later on, you'll find out that she marries a uh, an Israelite man named, Sal- named Solomon in the tribe of Judah. She has a son named Boaz who, na- who marries a Moabite lady named Ruth who has a son named Obed who has a son named Jesse who has a son named David who generations later has a son named Jesus. And this little Gentile prostitute lady becomes part of the lineage of the Messiah. And the point that the author is making to us is the same one, that it is far better to obey God rather than men, where the two conflict. 
It is far better to fear the Lord than the anger of mere mortals like Pharaoh. It is far better to forsake short-term glory, short-term reward, short-term temporary pleasures of sin in this life right now. And, and, and consequence to that, receive God's reward, which far outweighs all of the things that we would have to otherwise give up. It's far better like Rahab and Moses and Israel to forfeit the temporary now and gain eternal reward than to enjoy all of those temporary things now and forfeit eternal reward. Amen? And this is, again, in the context of a letter written to people who are experiencing persecution. They are going through it as the letter is written. And he is telling them, don't fear the king's edict. Don't trade your faith in Christ for short-term gain, for short-term comfort, for short-term pleasures of sin right now. Don't be like those Egyptians who got destroyed by the destroyer rather than put their faith in the Lamb and escaped and enjoyed the reward of the Red Sea crossing into the promised land eventually. And, and I would just encourage you the same way. There's all kinds of temptations and pressures, even here in the U.S. You know, this, tomorrow is our 240th birthday. And what has made this nation great is, is the churches of its, of its countryside. And the fact that in the history of the world, no other nation has sent out more missionaries than this one. But that era is coming to an end. And the churches will have to stand. And it will not be comfortable as it has heretofore been. And you will have to make a choice. In fact, many of you are making choices right now between whether you're going to allow yourself to be counted among the people of God though it costs you or whether you're going to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Choose wisely. Amen. Choose to follow the Lord. Choose to obey Him. Though there is a cost, it is far outweighed by the reward to come than anything we give up here. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word and you tell us about the outcome of those who by faith received your reward because they really were indeed blessed and rewarded. Moses gave up being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter to be, to be called the child of God and became the most significant figure in all of the Old Testament as a result. With a great name that is known all throughout the world, although no one can remember who the Pharaoh was 
that he stood against. And Father, he possesses in your kingdom a glory that is lasting. And Father, though none of us here is, is anywhere near to Moses, Father, I pray that we would choose like him to flee from sin and run to you and to cling to you no matter the cost because your reward is great. And in fact, you are the greatest of the rewards. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.